Well, I'm very grateful to David for inviting me to come here this evening. Just over 50 years ago, on 18th September 1961, UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld and his entourage died in a plane crash on a mission to try to bring, to bring peace to the Congo. They had flown from Leopoldville, now Kinshasa, to the town of Indola in what was then the British colonial territory of northern Rhodesia and is now Zambia. Hammarskjöld was expecting to meet for talks at Indola Airport with Moy Shombi, the self-styled president of Katanga in the south of Congo, which had seceded illegally just 11 days after the independence of the Congo in 1960. The UN plane reached the airport and obtained clearance to land, but it did not get to the airport. It crashed, apparently between 10 and 15 minutes after midnight. All 16 passengers and crew from Sweden, Ireland, the US, Haiti and Canada were to perish. Officially, there was one survivor, but he died a few days later. Here are some photographs of the crash site recently sent from Australia, taken by a Northern Rhodesian policeman. As far as I know, they are the only colour photographs of the wreckage that exist. Here you can see the UN crest at the front, which had just been painted on, in fact. Cyril Adula, who was then Prime Minister of the Congo, had welcomed Hammarskjöld when he arrived at Leopoldville Airport, just a week before the Secretary-General's death. Here you can see the meet and greet exercise. Adula was shocked by news of the crash. As far as he was concerned, Hammarskjöld had, quote, fallen victim to the shameless intrigues of the great financial powers of the West and had been murdered. How ignoble is this assassination? Not the first of its kind perpetrated by the moneyed powers, he said bitterly. Mr. Hammarskjöld was the victim of certain financial circles for whom a human life is not equal to a gram of copper or uranium. Nehru, the Prime Minister of India, with whom Hammarskjöld had a strong relationship, said he did not know whether this was due to accident or some kind of sabotage. There was widespread suspicion that Britain had been critical of the UN mission in the Congo and had backed Katanga's secession, so accusing fingers were pointed in London's direction too. Never even during Suez have Britain's hands been so bloodstained as they are now, wrote Joshua Nkomo a freedom fighter in southern Rhodesia. Britain is outdoing herself in hypocrisy, observed the Bombay Free Press Journal. <coughs> Hammarskjöld's death was no accident. However, it was a different story among the white settler communities of the Congo and the Rhodesian Federation. Stura Linaire, the Swedish UN representative in the Congo at the time, told me that immediately after news of his death, of Hammarskjöld's death had been made known, Linnaire received invitations from Belgians in Leopoldville to celebration parties. Well, the circumstances surrounding Hammarskjöld's death are given a narrative thread in my book, the one that David was showing. By, by giving, they give a narrative thread by telling the story of how I carried out my research. That's not possible here in a talk of less than an hour, but I do want to give a sense of those circumstances. To do so in a way that is not too discursive I will give a loose focus to the town and airport of Indola, a very interesting place in its own right. It was a centre for slave trading centuries ago, which is remembered in Indola's coat of arms. In the long years of colonial rule by Britain, 
it became an important centre for the mining of copper and other minerals. And since 1961, it has been important to Zambians as the place where Dal Kamersholt was killed in a plane crash. The memorial, site, the memorial site is a national monument and known locally as Sweden. To get there, you drive from the town to an avenue that has been planted with Swedish pine trees. Then you pass through dry scrub near the Dalkamersholt Living Memorial School to reach the site. There's a mound of stones at the centre of the area where the plane crashed, surrounded by a green lawn and an outer circle of shrubs <coughs> and trees. There are some steps to the top of a large anthill, against which the body of the Secretary General was said to have been leaning when he was found. Actually, he wasn't, but that's another story. At the top of this anthill, there is a platform from which you can look out over the neighbourhood, including the Congo, only nine kilometres away. Zambians have very great respect for Hammerschultz, and the memorial site is tended carefully. Commemorations are held annually. <coughs> and here you can see um, Dr. Mumba, then the Vice President of Zambia, coming to pay respects. And here you can see the Swedish Ambassador to Zambia, another year, coming to pay respects. And last year, on the 50th anniversary of uh, Hammerschultz's death, the Swedish Foreign Minister, Carl Bildt, um, came to join in the, um, the, mem the um, commemorations. Immediately after the crash in 1961, and ever since, a mass of reliable evidence from a range of sources, as well as some unreliable evidence, I should add, um, has, but the reliable evidence has confirmed suspicions about the crash, revealing that a second plane followed Hammerschultz's plane when it reached Indola airspace, attacking it and causing a ball of fire in the sky. After it crashed, about eight miles from the airport, a group of mercenaries <coughs> drove up in jeeps. When they left, the wreck then went up in flames, which destroyed up to 80% of the fuselage. New information has been coming in all the time ever since the book was published. And just five days ago, I heard from a man in South Africa who was driving past on his motorbike after the crash. He went to look at the scene and he saw bullet holes, a row of bullet holes the size of a fist in a row along the fuselage, hence cannon holes. At that point, the wreckage was still, hadn't been burnt. Almost as soon as he arrived, the men in jeeps rushed up, abruptly made him go away, and shortly after it all went up in flames. The plane did not crash as a result of pilot error, as claimed by a Rhodesian public inquiry of 1961 to two, and a 1993 private inquiry for the, Swedish, for the Swedish government, solely on the basis of elimination. The UN inquiry report of 1962 reached an open verdict. It found that sabotage of some kind could not be excluded, but it failed to answer many key questions. This was not entirely the UN Commission's fault. For example, it was not shown suspicious photographs of Dahl Kammerschultz's body, which I found in the Walensky papers at Rhodes House here in Oxford, and which the Swedish Foreign Ministry have now been forced to admit they have copies of. I should like to mention here in passing the importance of these papers at Rhodes House, and my gratitude as well to the archivists at Rhodes House, Lucy McCann and John Pinfold, for their very great help with my research. Opinions and beliefs about the crash of the plane in which Hammerschold and his mission team are travelling have been mired in confusion and mythology. There is an assumption, for example, that Indola Airport was a small primitive airfield in the middle of nowhere. This is exactly what the famous Australian artist, Sidney Nolan, and his wife Cynthia believed when they came to visit the site in 1962. 
When the world was stunned by the news that the head of the UN had been killed in a plane that had crashed near Indola in northern Rhodesia, wrote Cynthia Nolan, one had the impression that Indola was a small village way out in the back of beyond. But when they landed, they were surprised. It was astonishing, wrote Mrs Nolan, to land on a well-kept international airstrip before a large modern building and be driven into a town of 80,000 inhabitants. Here are two photographs of the airport in the mid-1960s showing that it had modern standards and was the hub of modern aircraft. In September 1961, in fact, there were 18 Royal Rhodesian Air Force planes parked on its tarmac, and a senior UN official who was at Indola Airport for several days after the crash stated in testimony, which has only just been discovered, that there were many planes arriving and leaving when I was there. There were 30 or 40 fighters, and there were several private planes coming in and taking off. Hammershell may have been assassinated, or he may have been killed in a failed hijacking. This is explored and discussed in my book. But whatever the details, his death <coughs> was the result of sinister intervention. Furthermore, the evidence of foul play that was given at the time was suppressed or belittled by the Rhodesian authorities. Looking at Indola Airport is an instructive way of putting British colonial Africa firmly into our sights this evening. One of the flaws in discussions until now of Hammerschelt's role in Africa, at least in my view, is that it is nearly always dominated by discussions of the Congo and South Africa, so that Britain and British colonial territories are largely neglected. But this is a mistake. The place where Dark Hammerschelt perished was one of the centres of a massive drive by whites in sub-Saharan <coughs> Africa to maintain minority rule in the face of African nationalism. By the early 1960s, white settlers had become desperate to cling on to power. Arguably, the situation could be described as a race war. By 1961, African self-rule was making steady progress southward from the north of the continent. 16 African states joined the UN in 1960, so that Africa itself now provided one quarter of the UN's membership. At the end of the Second World War, European powers had not expected African colonies to be ready for independence for several decades, but it was soon clear that the African nationalist movement was unstoppable. European colonial power across the world was waning, a trend that was highlighted by the transfer of power from Britain to India and Pakistan in 1947. Only 10 years after the ending of Imperial India, the British African colony of Ghana became independent. This was highlighted by Macmillan's Wind of Change speech in South Africa in 1960. But this wind was blowing in the wrong direction as far as most white settlers of Central and Southern Africa were concerned. And when Belgium announced in January 1960 its plan for the independence in June of the Belgian Congo, most of the resident <coughs> Belgians and the whites in the region were horrified. It now seemed, as one observer put it, that there was a twisting frontier, the battle line, dividing independent black Africa from the southern white redoubt. The white minority set out to establish a barrier against the tide of African nationalism, a kind of wall separating the south from the north of the continent. Over the next 20 years, the whites of the Portuguese and British colonies in the African subcontinent <laughs> sought to stay in power. And in 1961, the whites of Katanga and the Rhodesian Federation were fighting an aggressive war supported by mercenaries. When Hammarskjöld flew into Katanga, he was flying directly into a centre of the war, and he was perceived by most whites to be on the wrong side, by most blacks 
he was seen to be on the side of majority rule and freedom. If Hammarskjöld had landed at Indola, he would have found a society as segregated as that of South Africa. Northern Rhodesia was one part of the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland, which had been specifically set up in 1953 as a way of protecting white rule. The mineral wealth of Northern Rhodesia in the area around Indola being used to maintain the white society centered in Southern Rhodesia. But the Federation fell apart in 1964 with the independence of Zambia and Malawi. The third part of the Federation, Zimbabwe, was another long and very painful story. As mentioned earlier, the mineral-rich province of Katanga in the south of the Congo seceded just 11 days after the independence of the Congo in 1960. The secession had been planned before independence by the European multinationals op operating in the region who were mining a fortune out of the province and into foreign banks. Katanga contained more than 60% of the Congo's entire natural resources and was a major source of the world's minerals copper, uranium, tin, manganese, diamonds, and more than 80% of the cobalt that fed Western industry. Moïse Chambi became president, backed by the Belgian government and the British Rhodesias on its southern border. Katanga was propped up by white mercenaries. Oh, I missed that map, sorry. <laughs> Perhaps I'll just go back briefly to that map so you can see the border between Katanga in the south of the Congo um, and northern Rhodesia. I'll leave that up. Oh, I'll just. There's Jombie with the mercenaries, and I'll go back to the map. The impact of Katanga's secession on the rest of the nation was disastrous. The Congo had no hope of surviving economically without the wealth of Katanga. In this catastrophic situation, the democratically elected Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba, turned to the UN for help to remove the Belgian troops from the Congo and to end the secession of Katanga. They had already asked for technical assistance, but now they needed assistance to keep law and order. Hammarskjöld responded immediately. He called for an urgent meeting of representatives of African countries. This was followed two days later by a meeting of the Security Council. After swift deliberations, it passed Resolution 143, calling on the Belgian government to withdraw its troops from the territory of the Congo. It also called on the UN to assist the Congo until its own forces were able to cope adequately. Both superpowers, the US and the Soviet Union, voted in favour of the resolution. No country opposed it, though France and the UK abstained. Barely 48 hours later, the first blue helmets arrived in Leopoldville, and ONUC, l'Organisation des Nations Unies au Congo, was born. Within just two days, the ONUC force numbered 3,500 men who were dispersed all over the Congo, except Katanga. They came from Morocco, Tunisia, Ghana, Ethiopia, Malaysia, Sweden, Norway, and Ireland. Hammarskjöld had instructed that they should not include troops from the great powers, nor from states that might have special interests in the crisis area. Sorry. Here you see Hammarskjöld meeting soldiers of the Indian contingent in Leopoldville in September 1961. When Hammarskjöld was appointed the second UN Secretary General in 1953, the UN had been in existence for just eight years. As its leader, he seemed to, as one person said, restore the soul that had somehow slipped away in the UN's first few years. Under the first Secretary General, Trig V. Lee, the UN had been shaken and demoralized by the excesses of American anti-communism and McCarthyism. Now Hammarskjöld was determined to imbue the UN with a new sense of purpose, 
and commitment to the ideals of international service. And not quite four months before his death near Indola, Hammersholt visited Oxford to receive an honorary degree. He used the occasion to put forward his concept of an independent international civil service as a keystone of an effective global order. The Secretary General, he argued in his speech, remains under the obligation to carry out the policies as adapted by the UN organs. The essential requirement is that he does this on the basis of his exclusively international responsibility and not in the interest of any particular state or group of states. For him, this was a question of integrity, even if that integrity drove an international civil servant into positions that were in conflict with interested parties. Not everyone approved of this new autonomous importance, autonomous importance for the UN. Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, was suspicious of Hammerschelt's position of neutrality, which, he said, seemed almost like taking an impartial position between the principles of good and evil. The European colonial powers, notably Britain, France, Belgium and Portugal, were not happy about the growing influence at the UN of the newly independent states. For with the addition of the Congo, the Afro-Asian bloc now provided 47 UN members out of a total of 100, and the West could no longer count upon automatic majorities in the General Assembly. In late 1961, the Earl of Hume, Britain's Foreign Secretary, commented acidly that the UN was now run by the Afro-Asian bloc. These new states were exerting an influence that would have been unheard of only a few years earlier. Here you see Hammersholt on the right talking to Nkrumah and Ralph Bunch, Bunch being Hammersholt's closest advisor. <coughs> In his introduction to the UN's annual report of 1960, <coughs> Hammersholt described the states of Africa and Asia as powerful elements in the international community whose independent voice in the world polity was a factor to be reckoned with. The UN was to them their main platform and protector, he said, as they feel themselves strong as members of the international family but are weak in isolation. The support of the newly independent nations for the UN was exemplified at Ndola Airport on the night he was expected to arrive. A large group of Africans had heard on the radio news of the Secretary General's forthcoming arrival and were waiting outside the perimeter of the airport to welcome him as a way of showing their appreciation of his work and his commitment to majority rule. They carried placards stating their opposition to the Rhodesian Federation and to Chombi and their support for a unified Congo. The reason why the group of Africans were waiting outside the airport was that Africans were not allowed inside simply because of the colour of their skin. However, the contradictions in the political world of northern Rhodesia were manifest in the fact that despite this rule, special allowance had to be made on 17th September 1961 for Moid Shombi and his advisers from Katanga so that they could use the airport. One of the people waiting to welcome the Secretary General that night was Mama Chibesa Kankasa, who was an important source for my book. Mama Kankasa was a freedom campaigner at the time and later became a government minister in independent Zambia. In 1961, the African nationalist movement in northern Rhodesia had become very active and the political party UNIP, led by Kenneth Kawunda, who became the first president of independent Zambia, orchestrated a civil disobedience campaign called the Cha-Cha-Cha. Its name came from the hit Congolese jazz song of, song of 1960, Ande Pendance Cha-Cha. The disobedience campaign quickly took hold, especially in the Copper Belt, the mining area around Indola, 
As thousands of people insisted on being served in shops that were whites only, they also burned the Chitupa, the identity pass that the government required them to, to carry. The federal government likened the Chachacha to the Mau Mau movement in Kenya and cracked down severely. By September 1961, when Hammarskjöld died at Ndola, about 3,000 members of UNIP were in prison in the Copper Belt. White army units were stationed in the Copper Belt to check the disturbances. Two units of the all-white Northern Rhodesia Territorial Force were on four-hour standby in case of an emergency. <coughs> so the place was hopping, recalled Clyde Sanger some years later, who was then the regional correspondent for The Guardian. This was the crisis situation into which Hammarskjöld flew. Can you hear me at the back? Is that okay? While conducting research in Indola in 2009, I asked an elderly man in the town centre what it was like to live in Indola in 1961. His response was at first a quizzical look. Then I asked him if he was at the airport on the night of the crash. Ha! he exclaimed bitterly. Africans were not allowed at the airport terminal. We weren't allowed anywhere where whites were. Whites treated us like dogs, like monkeys, like baboons. It was a time of great injustice. He was not allowed, he added, to enter hotels or bars, nor could he enter shops, but had to make purchases through a small window at the side. He gestured to a butcher's over the road, like that shop. It had a small window for Africans. British Africa was run on a racist basis, where the African majority had no vote or state power. They were monopolised by the white minority, which had taken most of the fertile land. Rhodesian society was efficiently organised along racial lines, just like apartheid South Africa. Close to Indola, and right by the airport, was a so-called African township called Twapia, where Mama Kankasa lived in 1961, which conformed to the racial segregations of white-ruled Rhodesia, just like Soweto in South Africa. It was in Twapia that many of the Africans lived who witnessed on the night of the crash that killed Dark Hammarskjöld an attack by a second smaller plane and a fiery explosion in the sky, and their testimony was either rejected or disqualified by the white authorities. Officially, the wreckage of the plane in which Hammarskjöld arrived with his mission team was found at 15.15 local time on 18th September 1961. But in fact, it was cited and reported in the morning, many hours early, earlier, by Timothy Duranda Kankasa, who was the secretary of Twapia Township in September 1961, and the husband of Mama Kankasa. Mr Kankasa too became a government minister after independence. In 1961, he told the Northern Rhodesian authorities about the burning plane at least six hours before it was officially found. Some local people had come across the burning plane in the morning and rushed over to tell him. He immediately went to the site of the crash and returned to contact the police. Between 9 and 9.30, the men had reported the crash to him rather than to the police because they mistrusted and feared the white authorities. Mr Kankasa was horrified that nothing was done. There were no police at all, no police, no one from the army, nobody at all until the afternoon. It was not until between two and three when at last we heard the sound of the ambulances. For Hammarskjöld, racism was against the principles of the UN Charter. In the introduction to his last annual report, he argued that the international community had to follow certain key principles, equal political rights, equal economic opportunities, justice, and the prohibition of the use of armed force. On all four counts then, the Rhodesian Federation, the place of his death, failed to deliver. Hammarskjöld was appalled by South Africa's policy of racial segregation, especially after the Sharpeville massacre of, of March 1960. 
Apartheid had provoked considerable friction at UN headquarters in New York, where the newly decolonized nations were demanding that South Africa be excluded from the organization. Bengt Röscher, <coughs> the Swedish consul in Leopoldville in 1961, commented some years later that Mr. Hammerschultz's most vituperant opponents were, naturally, those who feared the end of what was unquestionably white supremacy in Africa. When the Secretary General flew to Indola, therefore, he was flying directly into a center of the race war to which I referred to earlier, to which I referred earlier. In effect, he was flying into enemy territory. And the US air attache from Leopoldville, who arrived, was astonished by the degree of hatred he found at Indola against the UN on the day after the crash. He wrote in a secret report, feeling, especially in the Rhodesian army, is very anti-UN. The three UN aircraft which landed there were ordered not to go into town and guards were placed on the aircraft. A Rhodesian brigadier said, get those damn aircraft off the field. The Norwegian crew of a UN aircraft that flew to Indola to help search for Hammerschultz's plane were made decidedly unwelcome. They were not allowed to enter the airport terminal, not even to get some food, and a guard was placed around their plane until they were told to leave. <coughs> the British state was directly represented, represented at Indola Airport that night by a large number of officials. Chief among them was Lord Elport, the British High Commissioner of the Rhodesian Federation. Elport's behaviour was odd, to say the least. When Hammerschel failed to arrive in his plane, he announced that the Secretary General must have decided to fly elsewhere, even though the plane had flown over the airport and been given clearance for landing. Elport's behaviour prevented a search for 15 hours so that the plane was not found officially until the middle of the afternoon. Middle of the, afternoon. the known survivor, who was badly burnt and died a few days later, lay suffering for nearly the whole day under the blazing sun. Also at the airport were the senior provincial commissioner based in Indola, the British consul from Elizabethville, and the eighth Marquess of Lansdowne, a UK foreign office minister who had come to the region as a representative of Macmillan. Hammerschultz's death prevented a peace agreement that might have served the interests of the Congo. Instead, an agreement was reached which served the interests of Katanga and the Belgians. The agreement also served the British. Although they ostensibly supported the UN, their behaviour in Katanga undermined it. <laughs> Macmillan may have spoken eloquently in support of decolonisation when he referred to the wind of change, but he and his government wanted to influence the direction in which that wind was blowing, much like the white sectors referred to earlier. The British government also wanted to maintain the global power that had been ebbing away with the loss of the empire, and that required a covert challenge to the UN. There was, another British, there was another British official at Ndola Airport too, who does not appear in the inquiry reports. This is Neil Ritchie, an MI6 officer with the cover of being Lord Elport's first secretary. At the time of Hammerschultz's death, Ritchie was on a secret mission at Ndola. It was he who brought Shombi and his advisers to Ndola from Kapushi on the border, where they were hiding on the border with the Congo, where they were hiding from the UN. Ritchie got officials of the Union Minier, the big Belgian multinational in the region, which had strong links to the British company, Tanganyika, Tanganyika Concessions, to steamroller the airstrip at Kapushi. There is a set of telegrams in the Brussels State Archive <coughs> showing that Ritchie was in constant contact with Union Minier and the multinationals in Rhodesia. 
Hamshell was not popular with MI6, and certainly not with George Kennedy Young, the deputy director of MI6 from 1958 until late 1961. Hamshell was quite blatantly, wrote Young to a right-wing MP, relying on India, Egypt, and the group of Afro-Asian countries who always lead the hue and cry against European interests wherever they are. He feared that the Secretary General was, quote, blandly, giving way to the clear intent of Nehru and of Dayal, an Indian who was at that time Hammerschultz special representative in the Congo, in order to crush Chombi. <coughs> the main obstacles to carrying out their plan, he believed, are the European cadres of Chombi's forces, that's the mercenaries, so that in following the letter of the UNO resolution, we are lending ourselves to the, to the destruction of the only stable part of the Congo, and will bring the tide of chaos lapping against the frontiers of British Central Africa. Who else was at Indola Airport that night who does not appear in the, in the official reports? I have mentioned the US air attaché from Leopoldville who arrived on the day after the crash, but there was also a high-profile American at Indola on the night of the crash. This man was Colonel Don Gaylor, the US air, US air attaché stationed in Pretoria in 1961, who was sent to Indola on 15 September by the US State Department to be available to help Hammerschold at Indola if he needed to be flown anywhere. But why was he sent two days before the arrangement for the meeting in Indola had even apparently been thought of? He has recorded in his memoir that he was in and out of the air traffic control tower all evening, and that next morning he went up at dawn in his DC-3 and found the wreckage. But none of this, not even his presence, is recorded in the reports of the official inquiries. Also at the airport were a number of people belonging to a group that Dag Hammarskjöld loathed, mercenaries who loathed him back. He had pushed through a UN resolution to rid, to rid Katanga of white mercenaries and also an operation called Rumpunch to expel them. There was a further UN operation called Morthor, which started just as Hammarskjöld arrived in the Congo in September 1961. And I must say that there has been much debate, especially in Sweden, over whether or not he authorised it. This is linked often to the question of blame for his death. I consider that myself that this is a side issue. Well, the mercenaries who were at the airport include the pilots and aerial navigators, Jerry Purin, Max Glasspole and Sandor Sputnik Gurkits. These men had a record of bombing villagers opposing Chombi by dropping bombs through holes in Dove aircraft and in fact a dove was found at Indola Airport on the day after the crash. Also at the airport were Carlos Heuger and Dick Brown, who both worked in a mercenary recruitment agency based in Johannesburg, and which recruited, in fact, Jerry Brown. William Richard Dick Brown was also the brother of the Tory MP for Torrington, Percy Brown, which caused some embarrassment in conservative circles in England, although in fact he had repeated great write-ups in the Daily Mail. <laughs> Carlos Heuger was a Belgian chef de cabinet <coughs> to the Katangan Minister of Defence and was said to be close to Chombi. Heuger was being investigated in 1961, at the time he was at Ndola Airport, by the UN on suspicion of complicity in the murder of Patrice Lumumba. And this complicity has been confirmed in 2001 by the Belgian Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry into Lumumba's death. None of these men appear in the official inquiry reports, but they are important because they were on the front line, the battle line, of the war between the white supremacists of the region and the African nationalists. And they absolutely hated Hammerschult and everything he stood for, 
I interviewed the notorious French mercenary Roger Falk in Nice. Falk went to Katanga after Algeria, and he made it clear that he was unreservedly bitter and contemptuous when he thought of Hammerschult and the UN. He had, if you like, an emotional sense of having fought a just war against them, something he was very proud of. I should like to draw your attention to the sharp contrast between the reality of Indola Airport on 17 September 1961, the night when Hammerschild um, crashed, with the picture given by Lord Elport, the British High Commissioner, which was, the airport was quiet with little going on. But the mercenary Jerry Purin described it differently <coughs> in his memoir. He said, the South African Airways flight from Johannesburg put me down at Indola Airport in northern Rhodesia at 1600 hours on September 17. My first impressions were that the whole Katangese government had come to the northern Rhodesian air airfield to greet me. Shombi and his entourage were in town. So were a host of UN officials, scores of officers of Rhodesian federal forces, and even a few well-known and unwanted mercenary faces, people like Dick Brown and Carlos Huygens. <coughs> At the centre of the action, I found my old friends Glasspole and Gurkits. Ensconced in the airport lounge, they were swapping notes with a wide circle of Katangese and federal officials as I strode through customs and toward them. We greeted each other like long lost friends. Here, I would like to draw some attention to one white Rhodesian at Indola Airport that night in the bar. This was Dr. Mark Lowenthal, who looked after Harold Julian, the one person on Hammerschel's plane to be found alive after the crash, according to official sources, but who died a few days later. Lowenthal is a very sympathetic character in this ghastly story. He insisted on giving evidence to support Julian's clear testimony that the plane blew up before it crashed. Julian's testimony was discounted by the authorities on the grounds that he was sedated and delirious. But his doctor, Mark Lowenthal, spoke as a volunteer witness, stating clearly that Julian was in his full mental faculties. On the night of the crash, about 30 members of the press, both local and international, had been travelling in a pack from Indola to Elizabethville, the capital of Katanga. En route, they stopped for lunch and strung a shortwave radio aerial around a small tree. And to their astonishment, they heard on a news broadcast that the UN Secretary General was flying from the Congo to Indola in a bid to end the fighting between Katanga and UN forces. The journalists promptly turned round to go back to Indola and made for the airport. If Hammerschult's flight to northern Rhodesia was supposed to be a secret, it was one that everybody seemed to be in on. But no reporters were allowed within the airport perimeter. We were not allowed near the airport buildings, records the Guardian correspondent, and there were no news conferences that evening. Nobody was deputed as press liaison. Lord Elport was determined to keep the press away. He reported to London, we moved a couple of 10-ton police lorries in front of the airport building to screen it from the inquisitive gaze of the press and public and he sent the press to a town some distance away on what one journalist later called a wild goose chase. Influencing the press was crucial to the multinationals and the Western governments in order to influence popular perception of Hammerschild and the UN. Huge amounts of money were paid by the Katanga lobby in the UK to journalists and publicists, publicists who successfully managed to create a perception in many circles in America and Europe that Chombi was a great man and that Hammerschild was not to be trusted. Earlier in this talk, I referred to the Australian artist Sidney Nolan and his wife, who visited Indola in 1962. <coughs> Nolan was deeply shocked by what he found at the crash site, exclaiming, Can you believe it? They've had the place burned out. 
Then the Rhodesian official who was accompanying them said, every piece of the aeroplane has been destroyed, and what couldn't be destroyed, buried. Every nut and bolt, you won't find anything about. And the curator of the crash site gave me a similar account um, in 2009. All the trees in the vicinity were cut down afterwards, he said, which some people suspected was to conceal the evidence of bullet holes in the trees which had been seen. And in fact, many pieces of the aeroplane remained. Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to show you Dick Brown. There's uh, mercenary Dick Brown's UN um, interrogation report with a picture of him. And here is... Um, <coughs> Rhodesian authorities um, locking the evidence of the, uh, the last pieces of the aeroplane away in a hangar. By locking this evidence away, Rhodesians appear to have hoped they were closing down the whole subject altogether. They also influenced influence and constrained the process of the UN inquiry. But the tragic story of the crash and its victims has not gone away. It is time, as my book argues, for a fresh full inquiry, and this time properly conducted. The world today is dramatically different from 1961. The Cold War came to an end in 1989. European decolonization has been completed. White minority rule has ended in Zimbabwe and South Africa. And multinational interests in the region have changed very substantially. For all these reasons, the pressures to conceal what happened to Bad Hammerschild are much less potent. Moreover, a mass of relevant documentary material has come to light and continues to do so as the response to the publication of my book has shown. For example, a photograph has just emerged over the last month of one of the victims showing a bullet hole in his leg. This raises all over again the issue of bullets in the bodies and what caused them. Did they go through the barrel of a gun? I'll show this photograph since it doesn't give the identity of the victim, but you may want to look away if you don't like grisly things. And you can see the um, bullet hole in the thigh. Now is the right time to launch a new inquiry, examining all the evidence, and it needs to be conducted urgently while the remaining witnesses are still alive. One of the people who was pressing very strongly for a new inquiry was Knut Hammerschold, the nephew of Doug Hammerschold. And Knut went to Indola um, just after um, Hammerschold's plane had crashed in order to represent the family. And he was horrified by the behavior of the Rhodesian authorities he found that there were anomalies in their behavior. Things just didn't add up. And he was very suspicious of, of details and the overall um, behavior towards him. Unfortunately, he's just died. But the former Archbishop of Sweden, Dr. K.G. Hammer, has taken up the baton, and he is spearheading a new inquiry. He went to Zambia last month to speak to witnesses in Zambia. witnesses Johnny Ngongo and Sefeli Mulenga, and um, he asked them what they could tell him about what had happened that night, and they gave him um, their testimony, and one of the men, in fact, said that he was, he was so grateful to have, have finally the chance to tell somebody um, who wanted to know what had happened that night. He felt he could now die peacefully. And um, Zambians were very, very interested indeed that um, K.G. Hammer had come with this interest. And here you see him being interviewed um, at Indola Airport. You can see in the left-hand corner, Welcome to Indola, by um, journalists from um, Zambian, Zambian um, television. 
And KG Hammer has just written a letter which um, has been sent to both The Guardian and the Swedish newspaper, Svenska Dagbladet. And I'd like to end with just um, um, some brief excerpts from this letter. He starts, I am convinced Dag Hammarskjöld did not die in an air accident 51 years ago. He was murdered. He goes on to ask, where were the witnesses I spoke to in December in the investigations conducted by the commissions back in 1961 to 1962? Either they did not dare to come forward or they were accused of having political motives for giving their witness statements or were disregarded because of the time they gave at which the um, crash had taken place. Since independence in 1964, he said, they all now have freedom of speech and values as humans and their statements have in Zambia now taken priority over the, doctored, over the doctored evidence from the colonial times, concealing self-evident facts, that they succeeded in killing Hammerschult and have got away with making the world believe in their falsified evidence. And then he, he adds, not at least the Zambians to whom I spoke during my visit are surprised by the Swedish disinterest. Shall we as Swedes really allow the Rhodesian apartheid, the Rhodesian apartheid regime to write Swedish history? Is it of no importance to us that the families of the dead pilots have wrongly been carrying the burden of blame? The UN promised in 1962 to authorize a new commission if new facts were put on the table, and we are there now. And he ends this article by saying, Swedish Foreign Minister Carl Bildt, you were in Andola on September 18 last year, and you surely heard parts of the witness statements just as I did demand that the UN authorise a new commission and that all the parties that have been involved now put the relevant information on the table.